God, uh, we come before you this morning humbled by your grace and your mercy and your favor that you've showed toward us. And we see that video of the persecuted church around the world and we recognize that we are so privileged by you uh, to be able to gather openly and freely in your name without fear of being arrested or attacked or uh, worse, Lord. Um, and so we praise you uh, for the privilege we have this morning. Lord, we lift up our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world this morning. We ask that you would give them strength to bear the load that you have allowed them to carry. We ask that you would give them boldness as they continue to proclaim the gospel in spite of the difficulties that they see on a regular basis, difficulties that we can't pretend to imagine. Lord, we thank you for ministries like Voice of the Martyrs who are working so hard to reach unreached people groups and to reach the persecuted church. Lord, it, it breaks our hearts to, to know that uh, while we have dozens of Bibles in our homes, uh, there are places around the world where access to your word is so limited that someone may have never had their own Bible. Lord, and so we pray that you would bless those who are working even this morning uh, to take your word forth in those difficult places. God, we also, I, I lift up this congregation. Uh, we recognize that uh, gathered among your body today are people who are hurting, who are mourning loss, who are dealing with addiction, uh, who are dealing with loneliness and depression and anxiety. Uh, Lord, we're so grateful that you've promised that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are. And so we ask that you would be among us this morning, meeting us where we are, uh, encouraging us and instructing us and helping us by your word and by your Holy Spirit. God, we give this time to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in May of 1939, the submarine, the USS Squalus, suffered a catastrophic engine or mechanical failure and found herself sitting at the bottom of the ocean, some 240 feet below the surface. During the disaster, 26 crew members were lost, but 33 remained stuck on the seafloor. 32 crew members and one civilian. Can you imagine being stuck on the ocean floor with 240 feet of water above you? Can you imagine the fear and the anxiety and the desperation and the hopelessness? It's dark all around you. You may be able to hear the water sounds as you sit there wondering if you'll ever be saved. The men on the ship did what they were trained to do, and they sent up a buoy that would mark their location and some smoke bombs so you could see uh, the, the air rise at the surface in order to signal a boat that was coming. Uh, and they were spotted a short while later by the USS Sculpin. Four divers were eventually awarded the Medal of Honor for their efforts in rescuing those 33 men because all 33 made it out. Four trips to the bottom and four trips back up with men loaded into the rescue chamber, followed by one more trip to confirm that there were no more survivors on board. Those 33 men were trapped in darkness and despair at the bottom of the ocean floor, and their fellow service members risked it all to rescue them. The thought, at least for me, of sitting at the bottom of the ocean floor trapped in a submarine is terrifying, right? It probably is for you. I don't know if I can think of anything, actually, that causes more panic to rise in my chest than being down there at the bottom of the ocean where we have no idea what's down there, and it, it sounds horrible, right? But the truth is, 
our own souls either were or are in a place a lot like those men on that day. Separated from God with no chance of survival on our own and in deep need of rescue. And just like those 33 survivors, a savior came for us. We've been working through this series for the last three weeks called Advent, Old and New, and we've taken a look at the arrival or the advent of Jesus Christ in John and Matthew and now Luke. And each time uh, it's been paired with an Old Testament illusion or prophecy, right? We saw Jesus as the eternal word of God in Luke and in Isaiah. Then, then last week we saw Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, and now as you've probably guessed, we're going to see Jesus as Savior, again in Isaiah and Luke. The Bible, uh, as you know, is an amazing collection of writings, and, and one of the coolest things that uh, we get to do as preachers is make connections uh, and connect things in the Old Testament and the New Testament and all throughout the scriptures, because while it might seem at times uh, like it's just this collection of writings that have nothing to do with each other, that's just not the case, right? We all hear uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all kinds of prophecies, and we hear that the whole Bible, the Old Testament included, is all about him and, and how it points forward to him and how everything's fulfilled in him. But, but sometimes it's just hard to see those things when we don't know where to look. And so my aim this morning in the texts that we're looking at is to show you just how amazing God is and how incredible his actions have been throughout salvation history as we make some of those connections. This sermon then is uh, going to be really very simple. We're going to look at three different focuses this morning between Isaiah and Luke, and I'm going to show you three things. First, how God used a foreign king named Cyrus to save his people, and how, how Cyrus is a type of a savior, but, but his role is primarily to point forward to a better savior. Then, we're going to see how God himself is the true Savior and how he makes a promise by his own name, he swears by his own name to save sinners. And then we'll see what we just read and, and look at Jesus, the culmination of God's salvation work in history. So the three focuses as we work through sort of zoom in and, and intensify, but uh, as we work through these focuses, I want you to notice the movement in the story. The, the way salvation sort of starts out there and seems far off and in history and then moves closer and closer and zooms in to be up close and personal. So, if you would, please open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 45. It's on page 592 in the Worship Center Bible. Uh, as you heard, I'm preaching from the New International Version if you have a digital version, you can use whatever translation you like, or if you brought paper, whatever you've got is great. As you open to Isaiah, uh, just a reminder that Isaiah was a prophet who spoke on behalf of God. So God gave him a message to give to God's people. And part of the book of Isaiah, the first two-thirds or so, uh, speak of judgment and difficulty and what will come for God's people because of their disobedience. We saw this last week with Ahaz, right? But even in the midst of that, God remains faithful to his promises to, to deliver them and to give them a savior. But then the last third of the book or so is filled with promises of future hope. And that, again, is where we find ourselves 
this morning in the last third of the book of Isaiah, focusing on the future hope of God's people. And chapter 45 in particular is all about the salvation of God's people. And two of our focuses are found here. So, focus number one this morning from Isaiah 45, 1 through 20, is salvation through God's anointed Cyrus. Like last week, I'm not going to read all of this first section for you. I'll do some summarizing and we'll check out some of it. But I would encourage you to read Isaiah 45 later today after we've talked about it so you can get the fuller picture of what's going on. Well, Cyrus, who we're about to see and who shows up in verse 1, was the king of Persia who took over Babylon. I have a map for us this morning because there's a lot of places to mention. So Cyrus was, if you look over this right screen, I got a a laser pointer too. So Cyrus was the king of this place. Uh, It says Media up here. Uh, That's another name for Persia. This is the capital down here of Persia. Cyrus was the king of Persia who overtook Babylon. God's people at this time were divided into two nations, Israel and Judah. Judah was captive in Babylon. Cyrus, as king of Persia, overtook Babylon, and in doing so, he overtook and started leading and inherited uh, all of these captives in Babylon. Tracking with that? So Cyrus, king of Persia, is now king of Babylon because he overtook it, and in becoming the king of Babylon, he now heads up all of these captives. So God's people are no longer captive to Babylon, as it were, right? But now they're captive to Persia. And Cyrus the Great, as he's called, is the new king on the block. You can imagine that there would have been some concern for God's people with this new king coming in. And how how are things going to work with this new king, right? Will he honor any standing agreements about how this relationship is going to work? Is he he just going to kill all of the captives? Would he he work them to death in labor camps or or building shrines to himself or whatever? Anything was on the table, right? They're at the mercy of this new king and his whims. Well, Judah needed not fear because God had them on the front of his mind and God knew exactly what he was doing in orchestrating Cyrus taking over Babylon. Look with me at verses 1 through 5. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you, Cyrus, by name, and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. God, in his sovereign plan, has called Cyrus, this foreign king who does not know him nor acknowledge him, for the sake of Israel and Judah. God says that he will cause Cyrus to have great success. He will go before him. He will subdue nations before him, strip kings of their armor, level mountains, break down gates, cut through bars of iron, all so that Cyrus may know 
that God is the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who summoned Cyrus by name. God has hand-selected Cyrus, right? Put him into power over the nation that had taken Judah into captivity, right? Persia overtook Babylon, who's in charge of Judah. And ultimately, he will use Cyrus to bring Judah back up out of captivity and put them into the land that they were once in that he had promised that they would have. Well, King Cyrus shows up again in the book of Ezra, another prophet. And, and there we read this. Cyrus is speaking here. Cyrus says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me, Cyrus, all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, and the, of the, Lord the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. God has said that he would use Cyrus to rescue or to save his people, and Ezra confirms it. By his kingly decree, it says, uh, Cyrus says that the temple is to be rebuilt, and that anyone who wants may go help and rebuild the temple of the Lord. But not only that, he says wherever survivors are living, the people are to show them kindness and generosity. So what's the big deal about Cyrus? And, and how does he point forward to Jesus and to Advent? This story might seem kind of out there, right? Well, look with me at verse 1 one more time. It says, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. Every translation that we typically preach from or open up or reference here in the pulpit at Crossview translates that word the same as anointed, right? But if you look behind the word anointed and you look at the original Hebrew word there, do you know what word you find behind anointed? It's the word Messiah. Cyrus here is called his Messiah. If you've been around for any time, I, I hope that grabs your attention, right? Because we know that Jesus is the true Messiah of God. But here, Cyrus is not just called a Messiah. He's called his Messiah, right? The Lord says to his anointed, to his Messiah. It's very clear here that Cyrus is being called a Messiah of God. And, and for anyone who'd been tracking with Israel's history or was just familiar with the prophecies of Isaiah, they would have recognized that word straight away, right? God is saying something here. God is saying that he's going to use Cyrus, this one who does not acknowledge him. He's going to use him as a Messiah to save his people, and he would. He would use Cyrus, right? By the hand of Cyrus, being directed and moved by God, God's people would be sent out of captivity back into their land. The temple would be rebuilt and things would begin to return to normal. In fact, if you look up, Cyrus isn't just called a Messiah, but at the end of chapter 44, you can see that he's also called my shepherd. God calls him my shepherd. And he says that he will accomplish all that I Please, right? He'll say to Jerusalem, God's holy city, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. 
In other words, Cyrus is a big deal for God's people. And God uses Cyrus, this one called Messiah, to save them. For the time being, at that point for Israel, he is a savior of God's people. But there would come a greater savior. And as the chapter goes on, we get a clearer picture. The focus zooms in. So jump down with me to verses 21 to 25 as we, are, as we see our second focus this morning. Salvation through God alone. Follow along as I read verses 20 through 25. Gather together and come. Assemble you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what it is, to, declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. So the scope has narrowed. Did you see it? Cyrus was a savior of Israel. And if we just read those first 20 verses alone or heard the story of Cyrus and stopped short, we might think that Cyrus was the one God had sent who would sit on the throne of David and deliver God's people from their enemies. We, we could think that he was the true Messiah. After all, Cyrus did end up doing a whole lot of that. And God calls him shepherd and Messiah, and he acts as a savior for God's people. But Cyrus was just a pawn in the hand of God. And while he did save God's people, he was always meant to point forward to something greater. And now God throws down on anyone who is listening. He says in verse 20 and 21, it says, Gather together and come, assemble you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot be saved. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And then he says this. He says, and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. God says, look, you lawbreakers, there is no God apart from me. And oh, by the way, I am a righteous God and a savior. You thought Cyrus could save you? You thought your idols could save you? What a joke. You pray to these so-called gods who can offer nothing. What's the point of a god that cannot save? Why would you worship something that is completely unable to accomplish the task that proves it's a god? It's worthless. Well, the problem that you and I face today 
has been a problem since Isaiah received these words sometime in the 700s BC, so 27 or 2800 years ago. Right? Because we do the same thing. We worship lesser things and we look to lesser things for salvation and they cannot give them. They cannot give them. The examples of this are everywhere. Right? As, as we come up on another election cycle and another election year, politics is an easy place to point. Right? We say, oh, God will use the Republican Party to save us from the attacks of the left. Or, or God will use the Democratic Party to save us from the tyranny of the right. There are saviors. We turn into CNN or Fox News on either side or, or even more moderate media outlets and they feast on our souls. And we believe every word and then when some public authority is used by God for good, instead of recognizing that he did the same thing that he did with Cyrus and that God is in control and that God is our savior, we say, see, my candidate and my party are the only hope for this nation. They'll save us. We do it in our marriages. Marriage provides a lot of great things. And at, at their best, marriages are a beautiful picture of the gospel, a gift from God. But, but then we look to our spouse to be a savior, to fill our every need for emotional and physical and spiritual support. And it's idolatry. And no spouse can live up to that standard. Or we look for it in things, right? Many of us are feeling it. We're so excited for Christmas gifts or, or whatever that object of our affection is, maybe, maybe a new truck or a new house or a new XYZ, right? And, and we think maybe that thing will make our lives better. And we already know it won't satisfy us for long. Right? It might be cool and it might be meaningful and, and giving gifts is great. I'm not knocking giving gifts at Christmas, but, but it's not going to offer any kind of lasting salvation or rest from the emptiness and brokenness that we feel. It's just another temporary patch for our wounded souls. On and on we could go. We look for saviors in all sorts of places. But, but God declares this. He says, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. And then he goes on. And he says, he says, turn to me and be saved. That's what God offers. Turn to me and be saved. By myself, I swear that every knee will bow and every tongue will swear that in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength and that all who have rebelled against him and raged against him will be put to shame. The language that God uses here in Isaiah 45 draws us back to the promise that God made uh, back when he started the whole thing with Abraham. This promise to Abraham in Genesis 22. Abraham, if you don't know, had just obeyed God in uh, the story of taking Isaac up to sacrifice him on the mountain. He showed his willingness to sacrifice his own son to God. And he says, he says this, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. I swear by myself. Do you recognize that? That because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. 
Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. In contrast to the wooden gods that cannot save, the God of Abraham, who swears by himself here, and the God of Isaiah, who swears by himself there, is a God who can save, who will save, who has saved, and who does save today. One day, every knee will bow before him, and every tongue will confess that salvation is brought about only by this God and no other. So we see the progression, right? From the very beginning of calling a people to himself, God swore by his own perfect name that he would bless his people and rescue them and give them descendants. And then we see Cyrus as this savior for God's people out of captivity. And and that then moves into the reality that God is the actual true savior in this circumstance, right? God gets the credit, not Cyrus, not idols crafted out of wood. But then we move ahead to Luke chapter 2, and the focus narrows even further as we see salvation through God's true anointed, Jesus. The birth of Jesus in the book of Luke is is such good news for us, right? We we heard it read, but, but just to remind you of what happened, Mary and Joseph are pledged to be married, right? And they, and they head to Bethlehem for a census, and while they're there, the time comes for the baby to be born, and he is. And so Mary wraps him in cloths and lays him in a manger, and, and the shepherds who are out in the field on the hill away from the city are suddenly and unexpectedly overtaken by brilliant Light. It's this shocking, glorious scene, right? As an angel of the Lord appears to them, and this angel declares that good news that will cause great joy for all the people is here, right? Today, the angel says, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. More angels show up, and in verse 14, they sing and praise God, saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The angels leave, and the shepherds, some of the most lowly people in the first century, uh, go and check it out and find the whole thing to be true. They find this baby laid in a manger and wrapped in cloth, and their hearts are changed as they leave the feet of Jesus, and they they go off glorifying and praising God. There's a lot we can talk about in this text and in that story, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. God said that one would come who would sit on the throne of David. And here, Jesus' birth is explicitly tied to David, not once, but twice. Luke really wants to draw that connection for us, right? He says, today in the city of David, a savior is born. And they went up in verse 4 to Bethlehem, the town of David. Luke is drawing a straight line right to this prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, of that prophecy, right? The, the prophets proclaimed rescue and deliverance, and the birth of Jesus is ultimately where that finds its culmination. We heard last week that Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. And he was given the name Jesus. Why? Do you, rem- do you remember why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And now Luke again proclaims these amazing things about the birth of Jesus Christ. Namely, that he is Savior. 
Messiah, Lord. At the birth of Jesus Christ, everything changed. Everything changed. The one that Cyrus pointed forward to and the one by whom God would bring about salvation had finally arrived. It's easy to miss the wonder of salvation because of how simple the gospel message is. Isn't it? Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners. That's it. That's, that's what we're celebrating and remembering for all these weeks leading up to Christmas Day. That Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners like you and like me. And it's the greatest news that we've ever heard. And the angel of the Lord delivering the news agrees. Look back with me at verses 10 and 11. He says, The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring to you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. And what's the good news? That on that day in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, He's he's the one the whole world has been waiting for, and he's the Lord. Church, there's no more waiting for a Savior. We're no longer trapped at the bottom of the ocean in that proverbial submarine wondering when a rescuer will descend and bring us back to the surface. The rescue tank is here. It's here. We only need to climb in. But we're such a discontented people, aren't we? Because we have everything we need for salvation and we have everything we need beyond salvation for fulfillment in life. And it all comes in the person of Jesus. And yet, we, like the Israelites and the Babylonians and the Persians, we turn to lesser created things to save us. But we don't need to. We don't need to because there's no more waiting for a savior. There's no more searching for something or someone to rescue us because he's already here. Not only is salvation here, but but that salvation, the angel said, is good news of great joy for all the people. That That means you. You sitting here. This is good news for you. For you sitting here wondering how you can find healing and wholeness, this is good news that causes great joy. For you sitting here wondering how you can find forgiveness or atone for all the things that you've done, for all the failures in your life, there is good news that brings great joy because that salvation and atonement, it's found in Jesus. Jesus atoned for your sin. Jesus brought you salvation. Trust in him. For you, sitting here who know God and who have been walking with him, maybe for a long time, but who still feel like a failure, and you're wondering, how could God ever be happy with me? This is good news that causes great joy. For you. Because of Jesus, it's, it's not that 
God could one day be happy with you or accept you or forgive you. That when you get to heaven, you know, fingers crossed, I really hope that God's happy with me and I really hope that he loves me and I really hope that everything will be okay. No, no. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, God is overjoyed with you. He's overjoyed with you, his beloved son or daughter. Look at these words from Zephaniah chapter 3 with me. It says this. It says, The Lord your God is with you, Emmanuel, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God sings with delight over you because of Jesus. He sings with delight over you because of Jesus. God is delighted in you, his beloved child. When you place your trust in Jesus, you are adopted as his son or his daughter, and he could not be more proud to have you. Have you ever thought about that? God is proud that you are his son or his daughter. I was recently talking with a friend about this, the idea of feeling God's love or of knowing that God cares for you so deeply. And the, and the question we were wrestling with is something like, when you imagine God's attitude towards you, what do you imagine? Is it, is it this? Is it, is it joy and happiness? Or is it disappointment and frustration? Or, or what emotion is on God's face when he looks at you? Is he smiling? Is he crying? Is he furrowing his brow? When I ask those questions, intuitively we all, we all have an answer. Something pops into our mind and it tells us a lot about how we think about God. It might be even a complicated answer, right? Because on the one hand, we know that God loves us in Christ Jesus. But then when we start to consider how he thinks about us or how he feels about us or feels towards us, it gets complicated at times, right? Yeah, yeah, I know that God loves me because of Jesus, but mostly he's disappointed that I'm not living up to my potential or that I fail so often. Yeah, sure, I, I guess God loves me, but he's also angry, and, and sometimes he's just mean to me. After all, how could he let this awful thing happen in my life? Or, yeah, I, I, he loves me, but, but he doesn't think about me. Surely not, right? I'm nobody. Why, why would God think about me? Well, there is good news that causes great joy to be had in the one true God. Look at these words in Zephaniah again. To you, he says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Because of his great love for you in Christ, God rejoices over you with singing. He is not disappointed in you. He's not angry with you. He's not let down by your repeated failures. He, you're not forgotten by God. 
Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says it like this. He says, in Jesus Christ, we are given a friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. That's the kind of Savior we have. That's who arrived at Advent. One who rejoices at our presence, not one who refuses it. Emmanuel is with us. God is with us. There is good news of great joy for you and me because unto us a Savior has been born. God showed us what salvation could be like in his anointed one, Cyrus. Then he reminded us that actually there is no other God apart from him and he is a righteous God and a Savior. And then... We saw because of the love that he has had for us from before the foundations of the earth, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born in that stable in the middle of nowhere, Israel. And he did it for you and for me, to deal with the sin that so plagues us. The arrival of Jesus is good news that causes great joy because in the person of Jesus, God had finally and fully rescued people from their sins. Cyrus saved the Israelites from captivity in a foreign land, but Jesus saves us today from captivity to sin. Throughout history, God has always been about saving his people even in their worst moments, right? In their, in their self-earned captivity to the foreign nations. God is a God who rescues people. And there is no greater act of salvation than the birth, life, death, and glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do I want you to do with all of this? Well, throughout this series, we've seen that Jesus is the eternal word of God. Right, the one who came to carry out and accomplish every promise that God has made. We've seen him as Emmanuel, God with us. The one who knows us deeply and yet loves us all the more. And now we've seen Jesus as Savior. The one by whom our relationship with God is restored. And so what do I want you to do? Very simply, let your heart rest fully in the arrival of Jesus Christ whether you've walked with him for years or you've, and, and you've strayed or you're feeling closer to him than ever or you've yet to place your trust in him for salvation, find rest and hope and salvation in Jesus today. Let's pray.